Amen. If you have your Bibles, have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. I will agree, again read the first two verses and then read the phrase from verse 12 that we will be looking at. The apostle says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your rational worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And then the middle phrase of verse 12, persevering in tribulation. That is the portion of God's word we're going to look at today, persevering in tribulation. And I'm going to resist all temptations to speak about the Kansas City Royals, <laughs> except that one. But I am going to start with a quiz this morning. And this is a quiz for Doris. Where's Doris? There she is. So some of you remember from a, uh, a missions conference a couple of years ago uh, or so, our, our missionary put up a picture of somebody and fully expecting him to say, does anybody know who this is? And everybody's going to say no because no one's ever seen this guy. It's some obscure king from some obscure nation that probably doesn't exist anymore. I don't know. But Doris goes, oh, that's King so-and-so, right? So I got a picture for Doris. Doris? <laughs> yes. See, that's good. See, at Ignite, they, call, they play Stump the Pastor. I'm playing Stump the Doris, and I did it. <laughs> this is Frederick Wilhelm August Heinrich Ferdinand Steuben. Now you know who he is, don't you? You could just call him Baron von Steuben. That's how we would say it in, in uh, American, probably. Baron von Steuben. Remember who he was? Martha, it's, it's I'm American. It's Steuben. It's Steuben, right? Steuben, yeah, but I'm American. It's Steuben. Anyway, he was, shh, come on now, come back here. Come back, come back. <laughs> Quiz is over, fun's over. He was sent to uh, Valley Forge in the early 1778, which you were correct about the, the year, to help train the uh, Continental Army there that Washington was, was leading, and, and they were sort of hibernating for the winter in Valley Forge. And von Steuben came with, uh, with a pedigree from uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was doing some diplomatic work in France, and it seems like the, uh, Franklin may have fudged a little bit on the, on the document that he carried with him, but he, he, his, uh, his reputation was a little exaggerated from his actual military experience, but nonetheless, he was sent here to train uh, the American forces at Valley Forge. When he showed up, it was almost comical. He looks at this group of men, about 5,000 maybe, and they, most of them didn't have any shoes. These, this is an army. These are the soldiers that are going to lead the American Revolution and throw off the redcoats so that we can become an independent nation, and they have no shoes. And he's looking at their clothes, and they're just rags, barely hanging on, because they had fought battles in these clothes, and they didn't have replacement clothes, and they had almost nothing to wear. And they were less of a, an army and more of a mob. 
as he had them run through drills, military exercises. They had their, their muskets and their bayonets. They really didn't know how to aim them. You know, their form was not good. Their bayonets they had used to uh, skewer, you know, to, to roast their squirrels or rabbits over the fire, and they didn't clean them very well. But those rabbits were long gone, and they hadn't eaten meat in weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And of those 5,000, he wasn't sure how many of them were actually able to fight. And, and there were others around, but there was dysentery and typhoid and all kinds of smallpox and other diseases that had emaciated the whole group. It, it was just a, it was a mess. Didn't know what they were doing. Very, weren't very many of them. Didn't look like a very promising endeavor. And then there was their commander, General George Washington, Suddenly the tide had turned on Washington, and he was receiving uh, uh, people in Congress, imagine this, from afar who didn't know what it was like on the actual battle lines. To, to, they, were disc- they were telling Washington how he ought to fight the battle, and maybe there's this guy, Horatio Gates, who would do a better job because he won the battle in Saratoga, don't you know, and he's probably better fit for this. And, and Washington wrote letters every single night to Congress begging them to send food, to recruit other soldiers to come and train. If we're going to succeed here, we, we need supplies, we need healthy men, we need all this stuff, and Congress wouldn't do anything about it. And uh, von Steuben was almost, he was, he was just, he thought, well, how am I supposed to do anything with this group? But there was one thing that he saw in them that he had never seen in an army before. There was absolute devotion to the cause. And he said, I was struck by the fact that they seemed to think that their cause was more important than their suffering. Their cause was more important than their suffering. He had never seen that in European armies. He was from Prussia. He had never seen, in in the armies he was part of, it was all about prestige, it was all about honor, it was all about rank, and you were just there to get a paycheck and for the honor of fighting. The cause was somewhat irrelevant. But for these men, they had nothing Many of them, they'd watch their brothers die, not only in battle, but just falling over from, from sickness or weakness, and yet they were convinced their cause was more important than their suffering. That's a, the perfect summary of this phrase, persevere in tribulation that we would come to the Christian life, that we would come to our devotion to Christ and say, our cause is more important than any suffering. This word perseverance, uh, I want to show you a a few uh, Greek dictionary definitions of it. Here's one of them. This is from, uh, for those of you who care, uh, the BDAG. If you study Greek, you know what that means. To stay in a place beyond an expected point of time. That's perseverance. Think about it. When everybody else would say, you know, it's time to give up. It's time to pack up and go home. It's time to quit. Perseverance says, no, no, I'm, I'm going to press on here. We think of missionaries today. Think of uh, Jason and Carrie Gupta in Ukraine. Nobody would question them. Nobody would say that they were doing wrong if they said, you know what, it's, it's time to pack up and head back home to the U.S. But so far, if they said no, 
even though people expect them to leave, nope, we're persevering. We're staying the course here. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to be wrong or sinful or cowardice if they leave eventually. Maybe wisdom at some point will dictate that it's time to go. But currently, they've said, even though all these people are saying, you should probably get out of there, they said, no, we're staying. You think of people in marriages where their spouse is just not what they thought it was going to be. I didn't sign up for this, you think. You know, it's going to be better than this. He promised me to love me and cherish me, or she promised to to go along with me, and it's been nothing like they expected. And and people are saying, just just get out. The world said, get out. Just, Just leave. You can be much happier on your own or find somebody better. Go. They said, no, I will persevere because the cause of being faithful to my Lord and keeping my vows is more important than my suffering in this. Another definition to maintain a belief or course of action in the face of opposition. As Christians in our culture, this is a definition of perseverance that we had better become familiar with. To maintain a belief or course of action in the face of opposition. When the world is saying it's okay for a mother to take the life of her baby, it's not okay for anybody else. You know, we're voting on that this week in our own state. Some of us already voted that for someone else to take the life of a baby is murder, but for the mother, it's not. Now, that part's not in there, but that's the implication, right? And to maintain a course or a belief and say it's wrong no matter what, it's wrong to take a life. Or marriage is God's institution, not Congress's, not the United States, not governments. It's God's institution. It's a man and a woman for life. That's marriage. And it's going to take perseverance in our culture to maintain that because There may be suffering in our future for holding to those things. That's perseverance. Another definition. To continue to bear up despite difficulty and suffering. When it gets hard, when it gets tumultuous and treacherous, we continue to bear up and stay the course and be devoted to what we are called to. We decide that the cause is more important than our suffering. That's perseverance. What I want to do this morning is I want to spend the bulk of our time actually looking at a negative example of this, someone who did not persevere. It may surprise you. The illustration, the, the, the man I want to use from the Scripture to show us what perseverance does not look like is the prophet Elijah. Elijah was a great man. In the Bible, he is held up as one of the, the greats of the Old Testament, Do you remember at the end of the Old Testament, 400 years before Christ, when God finishes his prophecies and he's not going to talk again until Jesus shows up? For 400 years, four centuries, he's going to be quiet. But the last thing he says is, I'm going to send my prophet Elijah ahead of the Messiah. That's a That's a big statement. Elijah is going to come. Now, we know Jesus told us that he's talking about John the Baptist, but he uses Elijah as as the symbol of the one who would come and lead the way for Messiah. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration? You remember where Jesus is there with three of the disciples and, and Peter and James and John, they're all there, and, and Elijah and Moses are the two key representatives of the Old Testament, representing the law and the prophets there. Elijah. He's the great Elijah. When, when Jesus asked people, who do people say that I am, they would often say, Elijah, you're Elijah, come back, because God said he's coming. He did some amazing things, some great things, and yet he did not persevere 
in the time of tribulation. We are first introduced to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. We read this, Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, another context, other times when I've uh, spoken on this text, I've always had the people go boo and hiss whenever I say Ahab or Jezebel. But you don't have to do that today. But uh, Ahab is a bad man. Okay, you're going <laughs> to... I should have known better than to bring that up. Ahab was a bad, bad, bad man. Very evil king. We read this about him at the end of the, uh, the previous chapter. It uh, says this, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who went before him. He was a king of Israel, and he did a lot of bad things, worse than anybody who predated him. Uh, And then it says this, It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was kind of the, the epitome of evil, and Ahab said, Eh, he's got nothing on me, I'll show you evil. He, he married Jezebel, yeah, hiss, there you go, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which is built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Then Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. He's a bad, bad man. And Elijah shows up. And says, as surely as the Lord God lives, it's not going to rain again. There's not even going to be dew on the ground in the morning until I say there will be. That's a lot of power. It's going to be drought conditions until I decide it's not drought conditions. So then the Lord shows up to Elijah. The word of the Lord came to him saying, go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is the east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. That's pretty cool, huh? God says, okay, you've announced this drought, now go out here to this place, and I'm going to take care of you, and every morning these birds are going to drop in, they're going to drop you some bread, you know, Panera bread, it's going to be really good, and, and an eight-ounce sirloin from Long uh, uh, Texas Roadhouse, and, you know, he just sit there and eats, and then he goes about his business the rest of the day, and the ravens come flying by again, here's some more bread, and here's some steak, and isn't this great? Probably wasn't that delicious, actually. But he hung out there at the brook for a while, uh, but as time went on, the brook began to dry up. It's a drought condition. We don't know how long this period of time was, but after a while, the water began to evaporate, and he thought, what am I going to do? Verse 7 says, it happened after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose, he went to Zarephath, when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, please give me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called her and said, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. I haven't had enough bread lately, so I was hoping that you might have some bread for me. That's not actually in the text, I made that part up. But he said, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread and only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar, and behold... 
I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat and die. It's drought. She's got nothing left. She's got just a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. She's going to make a little fire, make a little bread. They're going to eat it, and they think that's it. That's their last supper. Then Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me, and afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. That's a bold promise. Feed me first as a representative of God, and I'm telling you, your jar that you think there's only a little bit left in, there will always, every day, be enough oil in that jar, and your floured bowl will remain just enough flour to feed you until God sends rain. Trust me, do what I say, God will provide for you. So she went, did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. So he has predicted drought. There's drought. He's gone out to the, to the wilderness, and birds have brought him food. And when the brook dried up, he now goes to this widow's house, and she's able to feed him on an empty bowl of flour and oil nonstop. It just keeps replenishing. He is seeing some amazing acts of God here. But then something else happened. Came about after these things, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So he died. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. She blames this on Elijah. This is your doing. He said to her, give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him down on his own bed. He called to the Lord. He said, O oh Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Here we get the first glimpse into what's going on in Elijah's heart. He's experienced, experienced amazing acts of God so far. But when the boy dies, he says, Lord, what are you doing? Have you brought this calamity? Have you killed this boy? What are you, what's going on here? But he still trusts the Lord can do something about it. So it says he stretched himself upon the child three times. He kind of just lays himself over. And he calls the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. That is a bold prayer. I don't know very many people that are willing to go up to a corpse and ask the Lord to raise that corpse back to life. I've never done it. You ever done it? The Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. Elijah took the child brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. 
The woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Yeah, you better believe that. That's the most amazing thing anybody could ever possibly see. The boy's dead, and now he's alive. What do you think Elijah's thinking at this point? Drought. God sent a drought. God sent birds to deliver food. God replenishes the empty jars, and he raises this boy to life. Well, this went on for a couple of years or so, three years. Then in chapter 18, it says, Now it happened after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. Now God's going to show Ahab a thing or two. This is one of the great stories of the Old Testament. One of those stories that you wish Hollywood would, never mind, that, that somebody would make a movie. This would be a great movie. If you know the story of Mount Carmel, it's one of the most entertaining, most awesome displays of God's power anywhere in the Old Testament. So Elijah shows up, says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have. Because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, you have followed the Baals, now send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with, together with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? You're Israelites. You are Jews. You know better than this. You know who the real God is. It's not Baal. It's Yahweh. It is the Lord God of Israel. And how long are you going to waver back and forth? He said, if the Lord is God, if Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. Make a decision. But the people did not answer him a word. They knew they were caught. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now then, let them give us two oxen. Let them choose one ox for themselves, cut it up, place it on the wood, a sacrifice, but put no fire to it. I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, but I will not put a fire to it either. Then you shall call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that's a good idea. Yeah, let's do that. So you got the two altars, right? You see what's going on. So you prophets of Baal, you, you build up your altar, you get this oxen, you cut all the pieces up, and, and go through your normal sacrificial routine here. Just don't light the thing on fire. And Elijah says, I'll do the same thing over here on God's altar, and I'll cut it up, but I won't light it on fire either. And we'll call to our gods. You call to Baal, I'll call to Yahweh, and we'll see which god is really God, because that god, the one god who really is God, will be able to burn up the, 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 the oxen. He can do that. Real God should be able to start a fire, right? They said, yeah, sounds good. Let's do this. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves, prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire. They took the ox which was given to them, they prepared it, called upon the name of, the Baal, uh, name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no answer. Imagine that. Because there's no Baal. 
there's no God called Baal. No one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made. So they're up dancing, calling upon, they're doing their, their rituals, their, their religious dances, thinking Baal will respond to their dancing and bring fire down on the altar. Nothing happens. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them. He's really feeling it now. I mean, he's getting it. He's enjoying this. This is great. He calls out with a loud voice. He's telling them, call out with a loud voice. He's a God. Call louder. Louder. Uh, Maybe he's occupied. If you just call a little louder, you'll get his attention. Maybe he's gone aside. If you just call louder and scream louder and make more noise, you'll, you'll get his attention and he'll come over. Maybe he's on a journey. So you need to rouse him and you need to call him back here to, to burn up this offering. Or perhaps he's asleep and he needs to be awake. He's taking a little nap. Just call louder. Dance more. Come on. Rouse him up. You can do this. On and on and on he goes. So they did. They crowd, cried with a loud voice, and they started cutting themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. Like, Baal, look at us. We're cutting ourselves. We're sacrificing ourselves. We're hurting ourselves. We're dancing. We're shouting. Why aren't you burning up this oxen and showing them all that you're God? When midday was passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Like eight hours they've been at this, screaming, yelling, dancing, cutting themselves, doing everything they can that they think will make this God, who is no God, do something. What a sight that would have been. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar. So you see what he's doing? He's building this large altar with the wood that used to be the altar of the Lord, and he puts the oxen on there, and he builds this trench all the way around it. Large enough to hold two measures of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the oxen pieces, laid it on the wood, and he filled, he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering in the wood. Then he says, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time so that water was flowing down to the trench. This altar, this oxen, this wood is saturated with water. It is not going to burn. There's water in the trench. Four big pitchers, jars, just flooding the whole thing. You're going to strike a match, you're going to pour gasoline on it, it's still not going to burn. It is soaking wet. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Today, let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and you have turned their heart back again. Can you imagine the faith that took? Prove yourself in front of all of these people. Prove me 
that I really am your servant? That's a bold request. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. God heard him, sent fire from heaven, burned it all up, including the water and even the rocks. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, Yahweh, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal and do not let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slew them there. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there's the sound of the roar of a shower. Ahab, it's going to rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel. He crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. He's he's in a a position of prayer. He said to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. He said, go back. Seven times he did this. It came about at the seventh time, he said, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And Elijah said, go say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower. So think about what Elijah has seen so far. He has seen God shut up the heavens and send no rain, no dew for three years at his word. He's been fed by birds. He's seen the replenishment of the widow's oil and flour. He has raised the widow's son from the dead. He has seen God send down fire to consume this uh, offering, including all the water around, and now he prays and God sends rain. And there's one more thing that happens. Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins, and he outran Ahab to Jezreel. That's about 25 miles. That's a marathon. He outran a chariot. That's pretty impressive. Some of you have run marathons. Not faster than a a chariot. So Elijah has just experienced blessing after blessing after blessing and display after display of God's power and faithfulness. Now, Uh, The story changes here. If Hollywood was doing this, there would be a dramatic shift in the music. And they'd probably bring in some rock giants or something that had nothing to do with the story whatsoever. (laughs) Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. I'm not going to comment on that beyond... Well, I'm just going to move on. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel, King Jezebel, I mean Queen Jezebel, sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Jezebel says, Oh yeah, Elijah, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah says, Do you know who my God is? Have you not seen all I've done? Come at it, Jezebel. Give me, hit me with your best shot. I got this. I'm good. Let's, let's see it. That's not what he says. 
And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life. That is unconscionable to me after all he's seen, all he's done. Now let's at least give him a little bit of a fair shake here. This is, you know, I can read this in a few minutes, in a couple chapters, but three years is a long time. This has not been a, a fun experience all the way through. Uh, drought, real drought, like no water kind of drought. You know, we've had drought conditions around here, and we had the water restrictions a few years ago, but that's not like this. This is where the, you know, the creek dries up completely, and the river dries up completely, completely and, and it's just, it, there's no water. And as exciting as it is to read about the ravens swooping in and bringing bread and meat, I mean, come on, day after day after day after day after day after day, the same kind of bread, same kind of meat, same kind of bread. And what did he do the rest of the day? What was there to do? He's just got to go out there and wait. It'd be tedious, it'd be boring. Then the brook dries up and he goes to the widow's house. And now he's got a little bit of companionship, a little bit of interaction. He's got this woman and her, and her son, but day after day, what do they do? What is there to do? Can't talk about the weather. Well, what, what are you going to discuss? What, what's going to happen here? And then the boy dies, and the emotional stress and trauma of, of that whole thing, I mean, we read about it in a few verses, but I would imagine this took place in a, in a longer period of time where he's seeking God, saying, what, what's going on here? And, and this poor woman, it's her only son, and you said you were going to kill him, you're going to keep feeding them, and, and what a Lord, what are you doing? And he prays, and he prays, and he prays. And then this whole thing at Mount Carmel, as wonderful as it is, you know, there's a reason we talk about mountaintop experiences. It's exhausting. It's emotionally draining. It's fatiguing. To, to have a, a, a display like this, to all day long to be, to be taking on these prophets and to be calling upon God and to, to do all this, it is emotionally and physically exhausting to go through something like this. I feel a little bit exhausted, actually a lot exhausted, after I get done on Sunday morning. Those of you who've, who've preached with any regularity know what I'm talking about. I, I, I have on Mondays what I call the Monday hangover, but I don't let my kid tell anybody that I have a hangover on Mondays because... <laughs> They don't know how to qualify it accurately. But I wake up on Monday morning, and now it's even kind of started on Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening. I'm just wiped out. I'm drained. It's, it's like the buildup of all week. You know, this is, everything's focusing on Sunday morning and the sermon and the prep. And, Lord, I want to get this right. I want to be true to your word and help me change people's hearts and lives. And you've got to change people's lives and hearts and praying. And, and I just give and give, and, I, and I'm sort of spent, and I'm ready to go home and collapse. And then I wake up in the, on Monday morning, and, I, and I'm just, I'm drained. It takes me, you know, till afternoon and about three pots of coffee before I have anything really to offer on Monday morning. And that's just for, you know, preaching for three or four hours. Uh, Elijah, I mean, this is, this is an all-day event where the stakes are extremely high. If God does not come through here, I'm humiliated his name is disparaged, and they're going to kill me. And then, to top it all off, he ran 25 miles. I mean, emotionally, physically, he's drained, he's tired, he's exhausted. Have you been there? Obviously, your circumstances are different, but have you been there? Exhausted. 
the work God has given you to do, the, the trials he's placed before you, the things you're supposed to be per- persevering through, you're just tired. And you're exhausted. And then you add to that fear. And that's quite a tribulation. Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you by this time tomorrow. And Elijah ran away afraid. He ran for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came and he sat down under a juniper tree. This is a, uh, a broom tree, and it's, it's about the only thing that provides shade and protection in the, in the wilderness here. So God's providing for him. He's got a place to sit where it's not quite as hot. But Elijah requests that he might die. Take me, Lord. I'm done. He says, it is, a, it is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. I'm done, God. Just, just take me. I'm, I'm no better than anybody else. Yeah, I know I did all that stuff, and I trusted you, but just, I'm done. Take my life. It's over. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree. So he's exhausted. He's scared. He's given up. Falls asleep. God's so gracious. He lays down, sleeps under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there in his head was bread on hot stones and a jar of water. God sends an angel to comfort him, to arouse him, to wake him, and give him something to eat. Wake up, Elijah, eat, take some nourishment. So he ate and he drank, and he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time, and he touched him. He said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and he ate and he drank. And then what does he do with this strength? Scripture says, He went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God, 200 miles away from Beersheba. He is running as far away as he can from the source of his fear. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah, why are you here? Why are you in this cave? Why are you at Horeb? Why aren't you back there in Ahab's house? So he's exhausted, emotionally and spiritually drained. He's afraid. He's run away. He's despairing. He wants to die. God says, what are you doing here? And here's his response. Now... He takes it to the next step. He starts believing lies. 
He decides to believe what he wants to believe about reality. Here's his response to God when God says, what are you doing here? He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. In case you didn't notice, God, they broke your law. They tore down your altars. They killed your prophets with the sword. And I've been jealous for you. I've been fighting hard for you. I've been doing what's right for you. And I alone am left. I'm the only one that cares about you, God. I alone am left. And they're seeking my life to take it away. He's believing a lie. You know how we know he's believing a lie? Because I skipped over a part in chapter 18. In chapter 18, when God sends him back to Ahab, on his way to Ahab, he runs into Obadiah, another prophet. And he says to Obadiah, hey, go tell Ahab I'm coming. He goes, no, 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 no. See what happened is last time you spoke to Ahab, the Holy Spirit took you away, and Ahab was fighting mad. And he sent far and away looking for you. And if anybody finds you, their life is at stake. And if I go back and say to Ahab that I know where Elijah is, and then he searches and can't find you, he's going to kill me. Uh-uh, I'm not doing that. He says, have you not heard that he's been killing all of God's prophets, but I have saved a hundred of them. I've helped them hide in caves, and I've been feeding them all this time. Obadiah tells Elijah, there are a hundred prophets of God hidden in caves. But Elijah believes what he wants to believe. He's constructing reality to justify his fear and his depression and his hiding. I'm the only one left, God. I've been zealous, but you know what? I just can't do this anymore. He's going to go on to find out there are 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So God in his grace says, Go stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. The Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. The Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, a sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard that, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out, and he stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, there became a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? How many times have you heard this passage presented like this? Sometimes God is in the storm. Sometimes it's just in the gentle, soft voice. That's not the point. He, we're not... We don't have this story so that we will listen for the gentle, soft, sweet whisper of God. Do you realize what God has done here for Elijah? Elijah's in the cave, and he brings a tornado outside so that rocks are crashing down all around him. Imagine driving up through, uh, on 24 up through Woodland Park. You know that, that winding area where it's got the, you know, beware of falling rock, and you see all that 
that steel mesh there. You think, that's my protection in case that rock decides to squash me. And, and you see examples of those rocks falling, and hopefully you haven't actually seen the rocks falling, but you've seen them laying over here thinking, oh, that, that was right up there, I bet you, not too long ago, right? That's what he's, he's the, the earth, the, the, the wind is so strong that rocks and, and cliffs are crashing and breaking and these huge boulders are falling down. And then when that's done, sends an earthquake to shake the cave and shake the earth around him, rumbling. And then he sends Waldo Canyon fire, this forest fire sweeping through the whole area, consuming everything. And Elijah looks out and he sees the smoke and he sees the flames and he knows what's going on. And then all that shuts down. What, he, what he's doing is he's singing the great I am to Elijah. The mountains shake before me. The demons run and flee, Elijah. What he's doing is saying, Elijah, remember who I am. I control everything. I control hurricanes and tornadoes and forest fires and earthquakes. Jezebel, I can handle her. She doesn't have the force of a tornado. She may have Ahab cowering before her, but I got this. I got this. You saw me raise a boy from the dead, remember? You saw me feed you when there was nothing to feed you. You saw me provide water when there was nothing to drink. You saw me consume that soaking wet, saturated sacrifice. Remember that, Elijah? This is me we're talking about. Almighty Elijah puts on his mantle, covers his face, walks out, and he hears the voice. And Elijah, or God says to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? Get back there. Finish what you started. Go confront Ahab and Jezebel. I got this. You're safe with me. How does Elijah respond? I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am I'm left, and they seek my life to take it away. Same, same response. Yeah, God, I know, but you realize they're disobeying you, and they want to kill me, and I'm the only one left? Did you happen to notice that, God? I'm done. Take my life. I'm done. Your cause is less important to me than my suffering. God says, fine. Have it your way. The Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel, king, of Aram, king over Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall anoint king of Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Ebamohalah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Fine, Elijah, you're done. Go train Elisha, hand him your mantle, and you're done. You want to give up? You want to quit? Fine. And then, you know the story, right? You know how Elijah doesn't die? God takes him up in a whirlwind. We marvel at that. We wonder at that. think, wow, that's great. Maybe it's not great. 
Maybe God took him out with dramatic flair to make a different point. I don't know. It's memorable, right? Oh, yeah, Elijah, the one who wouldn't finish the job, the one who quit, the one who ran away and hid, the one who would not persevere. God took him out in dramatic fashion. I don't know. We're not told exactly why God did that, but I wonder sometimes if it wasn't to make a different point. As awesome as Elijah was in so many ways in the great displays of faith, he did not persevere through tribulation. He saw what he wanted to see. He ran away in despair. He said, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't care what your cause is. If you only understood, God, how hard it is for me, you'd realize it's hopeless. I'm I'm just done. The Apostle Paul says to us, persevere in tribulation. The cause is greater than your suffering. It's more important than your suffering. Now, we're not Elijah. We're not called, most of us are not called, maybe none of us are called to do the kinds of thing Elijah was called to do, but the call is the same. Whatever cause God has given to you, Whatever trial he brings, whatever suffering he brings, whatever difficulty he brings, you have to have the same mindset. I have to have the same mindset. It says, the cause of Jesus Christ, the cause of overcoming this sin, the cause of finishing this race, the cause of sticking this out, the cause of whatever it is, the name and the glory of Jesus Christ is more important than my personal suffering. That's what a renewed mind looks like. That's what a, a person who is giving his life as worship to Christ looks like. We do not shrink back. We do not fall back. We do not get discouraged beyond uh, repair. We do not hide and say, I'm the only one left. We say, it's all for the sake of Jesus Christ. I will stand even if they kill me. That's what a Christian does. That's what a spirit-empowered believer does. Paul could write this because he was staying the course. Everywhere he went, he, had, he could have been just like, like a lie to say, look, Lord, I may be the only one left. You know, Peter, you saw what Peter did. As soon as they started saying, hey, you're not like us Jews anymore, Peter started separating himself from the Gentiles, and I had to go correct him. I'm the only one left, and everywhere I go, they try to kill me. He didn't say that. He didn't say, take me, I'm done. Paul said, Whether I live or die, all I care about is that Jesus is glorified. So I'm going to march right into that next city, and they're going to pick up stones probably, want to kill me, and if they do, all that does is mean I get to go straight to Jesus. In fact, I know what's going to happen. They're not going to kill me, and I've got to stay here and be with you for a while longer. As far as we know, except for Judas, of course, and John, the apostle, the other apostles all died for their faith. They were all martyred, killed. They got the message. They weren't Elijah. 
they persevered to the end, even though it cost them everything. Why would they do that? Because Jesus did that. Remember these words from the book of Hebrews? Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, all those people that persevered in faith no matter what the personal cost, we've got the Old Testament filled with examples of this. Not everybody shrunk back like Elijah. And of course, the New Testament filled with people like this, and church history filled like this, Polycarp and others. We have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. He says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance of sin and those things which so easily entangle us and let us run with endurance. It's the same word as perseverance in Romans. Let us run with perseverance. The race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. He's the trailblazer here. He's the, he's the captain. He's the one that shows us how to persevere through tribulation. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see how this is connected to last week? Rejoicing in hope? You've got to focus on the hope. You've got to focus on the next life. You've got to focus on what's coming, not on this life, but on the next one. And if your focus is there where Jesus is, then you can persevere. If you keep your eyes on the hard things that are going on here, you're going to bail out. You're going to run away. You're going to be like Elijah and say, I can't do this anymore. But if you keep your focus on what's coming, then what can they do to you here? Kill you? Okay. Jesus said this, right? Don't fear the one that can kill your body. And that's all they can do. And you think, well, that's all they can do? That's quite a lot. No, you be afraid of the one that can kill your soul in hell. Jesus is our example. He kept his eye on the joy of resurrection and sovereignty and kingship. He knew it was coming. So he's in the garden, and he knows what's coming that next night. He knows everyone's going to betray him. He knows the physical beating he's going to take at the hands of the Roman soldiers. And he knows the wrath of God that he's going to take as he hangs on the cross. Why does he persevere through that tribulation? Because he knew that that was not the end. Yes, he's going to die, but he's going to come back to life. And God is going to raise him to his right hand on the throne over heaven and earth. And forever and ever and ever and ever, he will reign and rule over his people in glory. So what can they do to me now? Kill me, that's it. What's the worst thing that can happen in this life? It doesn't matter compared to what's waiting for us. And the writer here says, you fix your eyes on Jesus and follow the course that he followed, and you won't be like Elijah. You will be like Jesus. As the music team comes, as we prepare for communion, I'll ask the elders to come forward as well. Let me ask you a question. What is God calling you to do You guys can't help but look around at all the moving parts, can you? Okay, I'll wait. Go, Razor Eric, go. 
What is God calling you to do, and in what ways are you tempted to give up? Like I said, most of us are not called to stand up and call down fire from heaven and consume an offering. Most of us us are not taking on 450 prophets of a false god. We're not called upon to raise the dead. But there are things that God has called you and me to do, hard things, things that require perseverance and persistence, and coming to the place where we say, his cause is more important than my suffering. And I, I want to ask you to just, as, as we pass the elements around, as you have the, the, the bread and the, and the juice in your hands, as, you're, as, you're, as we're singing the song about Christ and being our only hope and rock, ask the Lord to reveal to you, what has he called me to do that I'm tempted to give up? I'm tempted to bail out. I, I'm tempted to run away and say, I'm done with this. And then look at those elements and be reminded that if Jesus had done that, we wouldn't be here right now. If he turned back, we would be consumed by the wrath of God. And then ask him, Lord, give me the strength to endure and to stay true to the cause until you call me home. Will you do that? Will you do that?